all people can experience these things, but not all people use that to choose violence. And so there is something, unfortunately, about the way that men are reinforced. There's something about unequal power balances in society. There's something about a whole wide range of influences that men get the message that they can prioritise what they see as their right uh, and that unfortunately reinforces their choices to use violence. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now. Let's dive in to today's conversation. Rodney Vlace is a psychologist with decades of experience on the hard work of changing the behaviour of men who perpetrate violence. Based in Melbourne, Rodney has consulted to governments and the community sector. A social justice activist, Rodney thinks deeply about the role of power and social movements, hierarchies and systems. Apart from his expertise on men's behavioural change, there's two reasons I want to get Rodney on the podcast. First, Rodney identifies as non-binary, and I'm fascinated to discuss how this decision transpired. Second, Rodney is a fan of extreme metal music. We'll get to both those topics. Rodney Vlace, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's um, good to be part of the podcast. So how do you get into working with the perpetrators of violence? This is one of those issues from which I imagine most people would, uh, would run a mile. Uh, what drew you to this kind of work? Sure, very, uh, very happy to, to talk about that because as with many people who come into working with men who cause uh, family violence harm, it's often an indirect route. It's not something we expected to be doing uh, uh, during our studies, for example. I'll just start by acknowledging the land that I'm on, the Wurundjeri people of the, the Kulin Nation. And I recognise that this, uh, this land that I'm uh, on has never been, never been ceded. So uh, I, uh, my background is as a, as a psychologist. Uh, I studied uh, over 25 years ago now. And uh, I fell into this work uh, when I was working uh, with a, an agency and they needed to train up new men's behaviour change program uh, practitioners. And in my various different roles as a, as a psychologist, I'd, I'd worked with victim survivors. I, I probably didn't support them or understand family violence, maybe as I do now, but I'd certainly come across in, in my different roles uh, women who experienced family violence, who are still experiencing family violence and who were, you know, had current safety issues, as well as their lives obviously being really limited by the uh, actions that men were, were taking and, and the ways in which uh, they didn't have choices to do things that others like myself would just take for granted because of the way that their partner or former partner was controlling the world and controlling family, family life. But I was working in a particular agency and 
they needed to train up new men's behaviour change program practitioners. So um, I observed for a number of sessions first, because this is very, very tricky work. And, and then from uh, there, started as a, as a third facilitator in group work. And, and when I developed enough skill, uh, became the, the male facilitator in a, in a male-female co-facilitator pair. So how big is the typical group that you work with? Yeah, so men's behaviour change programs is they're often based largely on group work. Uh, uh, the size of those groups vary. Sometimes there might be as few as five or six men in a session. Sometimes there might be up to 13 or 14, though, though we try not to make the groups larger than, a, than about 14 and often, you know, 10 to 12 or 8 to 12 is a comfortable size. And we base the work on group work uh, because we feel that it is important, as much as it's difficult for men to talk about these issues, uh, and as much as it's, we realise that men often don't spend time talking with other men about families and relationships and personal things, it's really critical this isn't a private matter. It's not one-to-one -one counselling. Uh, family violence isn't a mental health issue. It's, it's not like these men have particular psychological issues or mental health problems that uh, lead them to, to use family violence. It's really important that men have these conversations together uh, about uh, their behaviour, about what they really want for their families, about the types of men and fathers and partners they want to be, and about really trying to understand their partners and their children's experiences. Uh, and so a group environment is very important there in that while often men may start off trying to minimise or deny their violence or blame their partners and, and as facilitators, we gently and carefully uh, redirect that because uh, we don't want to collude with those stories and narratives that the men have that they use, that they draw upon to excuse the use of, of, of violence. We aim to build a culture where the men start to to tap into their own discontent about their behaviour, that where they start to see that the, very, the harm they're causing isn't who they really want to be, isn't what they want for their families. And certainly isn't what their children, certainly isn't what the ch their children want for them as dads, isn't what their partner wants for them as, as husbands. And to start to sit with the harm that they're causing, understand more the experiences of their partners and start to reflect upon some of the beliefs they hold in men, they hold as men, sexist beliefs, beliefs about power, beliefs about their role in, in family life, that they draw upon that, that gives them the excuse to, to use violence. So I'm struck by the way in which you uh, speak consistently about men who use violence rather than violent men. I assume there you're aiming to, to draw a distinction between the behaviour and the person to, uh, to, to remind us that, that none of us is as bad as the worst thing that we've done. Very much, Andrew, and, and definitely uh, all family violence is a choice. And, of course, some men, not all men, use violence because some men use violence in a very, very privileged life. But some, of course, have experienced a lot of really difficult things in their own life. Uh, uh, that can vary from their own exposure to violence as a child through having to experience racism for a lot of their life 
um, through the stigma that can come from struggling with mental health issues and alcohol abuse. But all people can experience these things, but not all people use that to choose violence. And so there is something, unfortunately, about the way that men are reinforced. There's something about unequal power balances in society. There's something about a whole wide range of influences that men get the message that they can prioritise what they see as their right to feel better in the moment, or to win an argument, or to control things. Uh, and that unfortunately reinforces their choices to use violence uh, in those particular moments. So all violence is a choice. And, and a fundamental principle of all men's behaviour change program work is no matter what a man is feeling, no matter how humiliated or angry or jealous or vulnerable, no matter what he thinks about a particular situation, the, the, the use of violence is always a choice. And it's always based on particular thoughts of beliefs that he feels entitled to manage a situation by using violence and where he focuses mostly on his view of the world and completely blanks out, doesn't even think about what his partner or children might be experiencing, really only focusing on himself, his feelings and his own needs rather than what's fair in the situation, what might his family experience, how does his partner and children uh, want him to behave differently. And so we work with men to make different choices than the uh, violent and controlling choices that, uh, that they make. Rodney, you've been working on this area for uh, decades. Uh, uh, there must be particular men who uh, stand out in your uh, in, in your memory. Uh, obviously, you've got to maintain confidentiality, but uh, are there stories you can tell us about uh, men where you've you've really seen that change happen? Yeah, certainly, Andrew. I think in answering this, I think I'll, I'll firstly say that we do need to be realistic about the work. Many men who get to men's behaviour change programs have been using violent and controlling behaviour for years, some against multiple partners, uh, and are used to using violence uh, to, to make themselves feel better, to uh, using violence to control a family's finances, using violence to manage their own feelings of jealousy, for example. They may have spent years and years controlling the partner's social movements, criticising her friends, monitoring her mobile phone use, et cetera, because they have misguided thoughts and beliefs about women being unfaithful or that women can't be trusted. And rather than working on their own insecurities and taking a look at where their thoughts and beliefs come from, They've made choices over and over again to blame their partner. She's the one who's making you feel jealous when what she might be doing is um, trying to exercise her human rights to have friendships, but he then sees other men as a threat. And, and so because he has responded to those situations over and over again, and because of the lens that he uses, the thinking that he draws upon, uh, we call it the victim stance. The, the drawing, the thinking that he draws upon it leads him to believe that he's a victim of what she's doing rather than him taking a look at, okay, where are these girls' thoughts coming from? Where are my insecurities coming from? So when he's reinforced and rehearsed that over and over and over again, that thinking, that lens, um, reinforcing those beliefs, 
then change takes some time because it's not just about some skills. It's not just about, it's not about how to communicate differently. It's not even really about how to manage his anger differently. It's about him starting to see where he gets those thoughts and beliefs from, starting to open up um, to his family's experiences and, and for some men getting in contact with the shame that they experience because of when they start to realise the behaviour is harmful. So the work isn't magic. Uh, some men need to do a programme two or three times. Some men shift some of their behaviour when they do a programme and not others. They may stop some use of violence, but unfortunately continue others. And um, I've known a number of examples. Um, these are the very small minority, I have to say, but of men who've been through a programme, maybe done a programme two or three times, continued the work and have become practitioners themselves. Uh, not immediately, but um, who, uh, who then have become so focused on trying to be the best man they can be, who have become so focused on repairing the harm that they've caused and have become so self-reflective that they understand that's a lifelong journey uh, and then start to want to assist other men uh, to understand the work that they need to do based on the men's own journey. So, yes, there's certainly been uh, examples of men who have uh, yeah, shifted uh, substantially. That's so interesting you mentioned the example of uh, perpetrators becoming counsellors. I was nearly going to ask you about that, and then I just thought, oh, no, in this space you would just tell me that, you know, while that's common in other areas of social work, it never happens here. Uh, but to make that, that full transition from uh, perpetrator to counsellor is, uh, is, is fascinating uh, and must also generate some level of discomfort for uh, the uh, female counsellors who work alongside them. I think we are talking about a very, very small minority distancy. I wouldn't want to put a finger on it, uh, but we're not talking about one in 10 to <laughs> become a practitioner. Not even talking about one in 100. This is a small number. But mm. I think one of the things here, for all men who do this work, uh, and while I personally, you know, I no longer identify as a man, I've been, you know, non-binary for a little while now, I, I still really have all the privilege that comes from being a man, all the gender-based blind spots. Uh, um, and so, you know, as a practitioner, all men uh, have a lot of work to do to understand, and I'll use our, even though I no longer consider myself a man, to, to look at how we perpetuate power imbalances. You know, being a practitioner in this work has certainly made me aware of, of my behaviour. And while, you know, I don't make choices to use violence in the way that, the men that I and so many others have worked with do, uh, I can certainly see where I've used my male privilege, where I haven't um, spent time, as much time as, as my partner in understanding uh, maybe my children's social relationships or where I have left more of the emotional work in the relationship for her to do. So, and it's really critical for men to do this work because of this co-gendered facilitation, it's critical to have a woman's voice in the room to understand the female co-facilitators' experiences in this, this work. Um, uh, we live in a, still a very sexist and patriarchal society. Uh, her voice may not be seen as intelligent as mine. The men may look to me, but not to her. They may try to discredit her. Uh, um, so there are a way, the number of ways in which as men, if we're not aware of our own, the work that we need to do, that we all men need to do, 
to understand gender inequality, to understand our male privilege, to hear more about women's experiences, to understand how women are discredited, uh, to understand the the day-to-day lack of safety that women feel, the the way in which they're objectified and sexualized and invisibilized. I think all men who do this work, we need to be accountable to uh, to women's experiences of us. And we need to be open to feedback and use that feedback constructively to improve ourselves, uh, irrespective of whether a facilitator has been a former perpetrator or not. Well, look, I, I will certainly come back to um, your own non-binary status because I think that's a fascinating, fascinating aspect of, uh, of of what you bring to this these conversations. But I want to ask before that uh, about the uh, the issue of shame. Uh, you you write in, uh, in in some of your uh, notes on understand, understanding uh, engaging perpetrators of family violence uh, about the important role that shame can play in perpetrators' lives and made me think of that Margaret Atwood line that men are afraid women will laugh at them and women are afraid men will kill them. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, well, it's such a, such a, a powerful, powerful quote. I think um, men, really important, there's so many paradoxes in this work because doing this work, means facing the ugly truth of what these men do and the choices that the men make. Uh, and there is real ugliness to, to that. You know, violence is intentional uh, and we can't hide away from that. So in the work with the men, despite needing to focus on positive aspects of men and masculinities and working with men to be the best men they can be, we can't hide away from the violence, the impacts of the violence, uh, by no means, because we need the men to understand and face up to the ugly truth of their choices and the impacts. And change comes in part through men understanding the difference between the values they hold, their strivings, how they want to be better dads or better partners, what they want for their lives, what they want for their families, what they want for their communities, the difference between that and their behaviour and the impacts of that behaviour. That will result in some men entering the space of shame uh, when they allow themselves to listen more to to women's experiences, to see the impacts of their behaviour, when they start to drop some of the minimisation and denial and justification and just really stare at what they're doing. And so part of this work is helping men to not do what people, men in particular, but people, but probably men more or so, do when they experience shame. What do men do when they experience shame? Again, what do people do, but particularly men? Well, run a mile, bury their head in the sand, drink, become depressed, or poor me, I'm such a horrible person, how could I do this? And then it's just all about me. <laughs> and that's counterproductive. So having a positive relationship with shame and helping the men to use shame as an ally, guilt as an ally is important, not to drown in it, uh, not to just become so self-focused, but not to run away from it. Shame provides the fuel for them to work harder. So that's one of the reasons why work takes some time, because for a man to fully understand all of what he's doing, to really realise that, to sit with the shame and to go, 
I'm going to try to make amends. I'm going to work really hard here as a crucial part of the work. Rodney, what is the shame pit? Oh, the shame pit is uh, it's a, a, a visual uh, uh, a pit you can think of a, uh, uh, a meadow or a park or a, you know any sort of grasslands. You know, dig a huge hole, um, and um, on the left is the start of a man's journey, and on the right uh, is the journey never ends. <laughs> Uh, in, in them being able to improve their behaviour, but getting to the other side. And so we talk with the men uh, that as they start to, to do the work, um, start to look at their own behaviour, understand impacts, uh, allow themselves to sit with what's happening with their, their families as a result of the use of violence. They feel strong shame. And so they go down to the pit, they feel shit, <laughs> they feel bad, which of course, well, some men do. I should, again, always be realistic about this work. There are some men who do programs that literally cross their arms and uh, don't participate or metaphorically cross their arms. So I don't want to mislead you and say that all men experience this, but men who are working really hard in the program do. So the temptation is they're down the pit, they're feeling bad, they want to crawl back up. They want to just crawl back up to where they started with, um, get back to where they were, try to forget everything, try to say, oh, look, it was just a once-off. Uh, I didn't mean it, not going to do it again, uh, because that's the easiest thing to do is to crawl back up. The hardest thing is to manage those feelings, stay down, and then to keep moving forward to get back up off the pit the other side. And that means not minimising it, not denying it, hearing her experiences, staying with feeling bad and shit, um, and prioritising I want the best for my family rather than I want to feel better now. Because if the man prioritises, I want to feel better now, I hate feeling shit, he just calls back up to where he started from and pretends everything's okay. Uh, and that's an abuse of acting himself. So that's kind of what we mean by the, the shame pit. Um, yeah. And is uh, this something that mates can employ if, they're, uh, the, if they, they have a friend who is uh, a perpetrator? Then do you, do, or is there, are these tools only to be used by qualified professionals i guess i'm asking because there will be listeners to the podcast who know people who are perpetrators of, uh, of violence who aren't sure how to productively get their friends to change their behavior um, what can they do yeah no lovely lovely question and really really important one uh, uh certainly working you know with men who use violence is specialist work um, Men's Behaviour Change Program uh, are, are really the important uh, service for men who use violence. And, and anyone can ring anywhere in Australia, can ring uh, the Men's Referral Service. And I've just got to go to NTV, which is no to violence, ntv.org.au, and you'll get the Men's Referral Service website. And anyone can ring, and, and that's an opportunity for a, a man to uh, know where the nearest Men's Behaviour Change Program is. But there's a journey for men to get there, and this comes back to your question. Uh, while our mental behaviour change programs are the service that works with these men, you know, anger management programs can often just cause harm. There's a real difference between mental behaviour change programs and anger management programs because it's not about managing anger, it's around men's choices to, to control their family. Um, um, and it's about focusing on risk. Anger management programs don't do that. 
So while relationship counselling, anger management programs, individual counselling by well-meaning psychologists, you know, they're often not helpful and we need to get men to men's behaviour change programs. Issues, how do we get men there? And so friends, colleagues can play a really important role. And uh, part of that is about, uh, you know, maybe not focusing so much on, on, on shame or the, the shame pit, but is, I guess, having the sort of supportive conversations that helps a man to realise, you know, gives a space for a man to reflect that it's just not working, that um, things aren't how he wants them to be. Uh, and that, um, yeah, his behaviour is letting himself down as well as letting his family down. Part of that conversation is, is yeah, it's really trying to acknowledge and, and allowing the man to talk uh, about you know, how, how he's choosing to respond to things in his family. He's probably letting himself down uh, as not who he wants to be. And it's that sort of, I guess, that sort of uncomfort, discomfort that the man experiences, the difference between uh, what he wants and his behaviour. If you can appeal to that, then you can say, look, yeah, this is a service called the Men Fulfill Service that speaks to you know, literally thousands of men a year. Um, so, you know, they're the approaches I would take. I would also be conscious that if, you know, a mate or a friend talks about this intervention order that they've got, uh, just be really, really careful not to collude with anything that the man might say about, oh, look, the police just, they just spoke to her, they didn't speak to, to me, they got it all wrong. Because it's generally, if a man's going to court, if there's police involvement because of his use of violence. So this can be difficult if you're friends because for a man who uses violence, he, to feel better about what he's done, will often minimise his behaviour, blame his partner, blame police, blame the court. So another important thing it's not to just not be ahead and collude with that, but to say things like, well, yeah, here you didn't want this. You don't want the police in, involved in your life, but you know, probably pretty worried about your partner and your, your kids. You know, that sort of type of stuff can be helpful too. How different are perpetrators? Uh, I think of the... Um... Anna Karenina principle that Tolstoy has, that uh, happy families are all alike, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, uh, versus um, Jess Hill's uh, uh, book in which she talks about perpetrators almost acting as though they're following a playbook. Uh, do, you, do you find a lot of commonality in the patterns of behaviour, particularly around coercive control, or, or is there... Is it more characterised by diversity of experiences? I do find quite a lot of commonalities. Uh, I find, and certainly um, uh, for, for men, for people who are using family violence, there, there of course are some really important differences, very important differences in background, important differences in experiences, important differences in how they may have learnt to, to, to use violence. But there are commonalities, there are real commonalities in drawing upon entitlement-based, privilege-based beliefs, sexist beliefs uh, that justify their, their behaviour and then justify their tactics to control. If women can't be trusted, well, you know, in the mindset of a man using violence, well, I don't need to check up on her mobile phone or ask who she's with or stop her from seeing that bad news news person there. Uh, uh, so 
and, and when she transgresses that, uh, which women often are trying to do because they want to live their lives, they don't want to be controlled into a shoebox, he sees that as a transgression. He sees that as being disloyal, as her doing something to, to get at him, and then he sees himself as a victim. So that dynamic of men setting rules, sometimes they're implicit, sometimes they're explicit, uh, of having really strong expectations, if not rules, of what she should and shouldn't do. Uh, and then when she does something different, him feeling that she's done something wrong to him and that he's the one who's been hard done by, that's really common. And that allows a number of the men to feel the victim uh, and to then feel justified to use different forms of cursive control of controlling her world and her behaviour because he feels that she's the one who's doing harm to him. <laughs> uh, that, that is really common. And, and I think the differences, though, uh, some in that victim stance is fed by other things um, as well, not just sexist beliefs and, and, and entitlement-based beliefs that they absorb from a patriarchal world, but things that have been done to them, um, real experiences of victimisation, uh, racism that, that they've experienced. Uh, so when we think for a number of communities who are really struggling because of the oppression that they've experienced and the day-to-day um, difficulties that they have, you know, refugee, migrant communities, Aboriginal communities, uh, that also strongly feeds this, um, this sense of the men being the, the victim and, and, and just the entitlement that they feel to then use violence. You've uh, spoken about the role of uh, patriarchy a couple of times in our, uh, our, our interview, and I know you've also uh, got a view on the way in which uh, it, traditional gender roles can act as a bit of a um, what you've called a man box. Tell us about the man box and why that's a problem. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting this. Again, um, you know, one of the many things we may do in group work is uh, in, in the part of a program where we're inviting the men to reflect upon what it means to be a man and, and expectations of being a man, expectations of being a woman, you know, we, we might start off by asking men to, to list, to brainstorm, what are some of the really traditional expectations uh, of being a woman that, that used to be stronger 40 years ago? Um, and then we may say, well, you know, what are some things that women are, are wanting to do to, to, to move out of those you know, narrow expectations? We invite the men to think about the same for men. You know, what are the traditional expectations of, of men, say? And then we say, well, what are some of the ways in which men are, are looking to move out of those, those restrictions? And in part, that helps to show that men haven't really and still aren't to a great extent taking up some opportunities to, to, to be carers or to um, do more of the emotional work in the relationship, to understand their children more, uh, to get out of that, that man box. And then we ask them, well, what, what might be the consequences of not moving beyond the man box? And, and it helps the penny to drop with some of the men that, well, they don't understand the kids as much, uh, that if... Um, they're not the parent that the child goes to when they're injured or when they've got to talk through the problem or when they're upset with something at school or when they're struggling with a friend, then they don't know the kids as much. And, and that there's a sadness there. So that's why in this work, even though 
impacts of women and children are always the bottom line experience of the women and children, safety of women and children. And we're doing this work with the men primarily because women and children's lives have been limited and, and controlled. It comes back to that you know, ugly truth of what the men are doing. There is, however, a real opportunity for men to move out of that man box. And to give one example from a man in the group, you know, I remember a man saying that, look, I'm, I'm sick and tired of standing over my family. I want to stand with my family, not over them. It's a simple statement. But it was him realising that by standing over his family, dominating, controlling, being the head of the household, making rules, uh, yeah, his kids and family were distant from him and he wanted to stand with his family and support his family rather than standing over them. And that was a motive for this man to continue to do the work uh, in, the, in the Men's Behaviour Change Program and he realised that that was important not only for his kids and his partner and his broader family, it's important for him too. Well, you certainly practice what you preach. Uh, you're, uh, you talk about stepping outside the man box. And uh, when I look at your email footer, you identify as uh, they slash them. Tell us about your decision to, uh, to, to become non-binary. Uh, what, what, what prompted it? Did, it? did it flow out of the work that yeah, you do? I think for... For men who, well, who've been identified as a man for most of their lives and then to become non-binary, so be really careful. It's so easy for someone in my situation, and I have to constantly check on myself on this, to say, oh, I'm non-binary, I no longer have male privilege. Uh, I no longer have to watch the things that I need to watch to make sure I'm understanding women's experience, so I'm not taking up too much space. Uh, and that's one of the, the things that men will often not monitor the space they take up, not just the physical space, how much we talk. Um, again, I'm using the we here. How much our emotions take center stage. You know, we've, just got to, we've just got to shed a tear and then suddenly we have the half the world having sympathy for us because we're a man. You know? um, so we could be really careful about you know, not pretending I don't have any of that privilege or not pretending that people will respond differently or listen to me differently or think I'm more intelligent because I'm a male but so I think it's really important for those men who do start to realize that they prefer to have a different gender identity to, to not just suddenly assume or think that we don't have male privilege and don't have gender blind spots. For me I just don't feel comfortable or it doesn't feel true to who I am and how I want to be in the world. Uh, how I want to be in the world physically, how I want to speak. Uh, I guess it's probably probably braver for me to stay identity as a man and, and, and you know face the criticism or face the oh, I must be gay or men looking at me strangely. Maybe by, by me identifying myself as non-gender binary it kind of like makes it a bit easier. I can explain why I'm different. <laughs> Maybe I'm just not being courageous enough. I don't know. But uh, but you're talking, I mean, your, your discussion of this is fascinating to me, Rodney, because you immediately kind of jump to the, the implications of the decision. But, but don't jump too quickly. Like, tell us what prompted this. When did you, when did you make, the, make the decision? Because it's a, it's a monumental step in, in someone's lives. What was the day you yeah, decided totally. to do it? I think it? it emerged over about 18 months ago. And our family has uh, a number of, of, of family friends who are rainbow families 
who uh, have uh, decided to be uh, gender non-binary uh, or who are gender fluid uh, has really, yeah, opened things up <laughs> in terms of some of my own thinking and, and my own discomforts and recognising that, well, hang on here, what do I, as a privilege thing, what's my choice here? But actually, I can see some of their discomfort and, and, and why uh, the, you know, the biological uh, uh, you know, that the biological sex doesn't work for them in terms of their gender, and, and you know, can see why they're making different choices and how vital it is for who they are, and how they be in the world, and how they want to express themselves, and 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 as they're transformed, uh, and it becomes gender non-binary or gender fluid, or or, or slowly changing genders for those who are who are older. Yeah, just. It's just so natural for them and, and it's beautiful. And so, to be honest, it's been the brave work of children and the families that have supported them and a range of family friends that have really helped me to tap into my discontent. And uh, that um, you know, life is short and it's, you know, life's a precious opportunity. And uh, I don't want to be trapped in something that doesn't feel right for me. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's limiting, it's deadening. And uh, uh, yeah, I just feel so much more freer and alive when I can start to, to make decisions about, oh, what do I really want to wear? How do I want to present myself physically? Uh, it just feels lighter. It feels freer. It, it, uh, yeah, it, it, feels, it feels coming home more to, to who I feel I really am. And, and so, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's liberating and so we sometimes seek to understand multiculturalism through the sort of narrow lens of culinary diversity, but I'm really interested in in the sort of yeah, applying that narrow lens of of what's in your wardrobe to uh, to to understanding your your decision. Is is that is it that that freedom that you now can have in your wardrobe anything on the the men's or the women's side of the uh, of the store and, and and choose to put it on when you wake up wake up in the morning is that is that a little is that a one, one way in which we can kind of key into thinking about the freedom you're talking about yeah <laughs> it's a little bit of a way it's it's uh uh however at my age do need to be careful i can look so silly and so stupid and <laughs> as can we all wearing anything right <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, the, the wardrobe it does certainly certainly opens things, yeah, things things up, and and uh, yet at the same time, it's being non-binary doesn't necessarily mean that I automatically want to always appear like a woman, and that's where, as the years progress and we understand the rainbow more, we will know that some people in the rainbow will choose to uh, make physical changes in their body. Uh, to uh, be the gender that they always know that they've wanted to be. Others won't necessarily need to do that, and they may not even look different. They may not have a single item of a woman's clothes or, or wear any makeup, uh, but that doesn't mean they're not non-gender binary. So there's that full spectrum of how we all choose to express our identity, and, and there can be some stereotypes of, of, of what that means and what that doesn't mean, and, and I think being able to look behind those stereotypes and think of so many different ways that people will express uh, gender uh, will make it easier uh, for people to feel that they've got the right to think about experimenting and thinking about what's true to them without needing to, to do the one thing that will show to everybody <laughs> that they're non-binary or that they're, that they're trans. Uh, Rodney, uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? 
Uh, this might sound strange. Uh, experience things more. Well, I would have loved to have gone out and done more stuff in the community. Would have loved to spend more time with people of all sorts of different ages. We might have travelled earlier, although it's really hard to do now. And of course, environmental impacts of, of flying is huge now. But picked up more hobbies. Uh, and, you know, my grades were pretty good. I, I probably wish I had spent less time studying and more time, yeah, yeah, living living life, trying to understand a wide variety of people. Yes, yes. Now, your comments on travel really resonate with me. I, I hadn't expected I would miss travel as much as I do and, and hadn't, hadn't realised fully how much uh, being overseas is kind of uh, one of my main sources of, of fresh perspectives and new ideas and, and vitality. Um, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? Well, you know, I've certainly been on a journey myself I think uh well actually a couple of things one is that yeah I used to uh, feel quite frustrated you know I'm going back into my 20s now around women's only spaces and and uh thinking back into the yeah, 1990s etc uh when uh was around the strong feminist women who are talking about need for women's only spaces and and yeah as a man back then I, I certainly felt defensive around that uh uh, now I totally understand the need for that. Uh, yes, a safe space for solidarity and 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 support. When are you most happy? Ooh, uh, it's a cliched answer to say uh, with family time, but yeah, when when a whole family is having really meaningful time together, we're having fun together, we're enjoying stuff. Uh, we're talking about the world, we're talking about our experiences uh, and we just have that sort of engaged fun that, uh, yeah, isn't closed off to you know, the awful stuff that's happening in the world, but, uh, yeah, yeah, really lovely, connected, precious family time where there's also some of our broader friends and, and community around uh, yeah, that's that's when I'm at my happiest. Yeah. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? A few things, I think. Uh, I think being able to have real conversations with people. I'm really blessed in, in the work that I do. Uh, that uh, I work with colleagues really right around Australia who uh, yeah, are really passionate about women's violence against women. And, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I think it's a real connection of purpose and that so much helps my, my, my mental health. Uh, certainly physical, yeah, physical activity and exercise is really, really important. So I sometimes run, uh, I play lawn bowls. Uh, I think uh, that's, that's, that's really important. And uh, yeah, music. Uh, not playing yet, but uh, but music plays an important role. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Talking about that music, uh, so much of a guilty pleasure. Uh, I'm an extreme metal lover, so I love uh, you know <laughs> black metal, death metal, black and death metal, funeral doom metal, black and sludge, anyway, grindcore, uh, death grind. I, I, I won't keep uh, talking about the different sub sub genres of extreme metal. I like uh, uh, guilty. Jesus, there's a lot of misogyny in metal. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I was there, possibly one of the most sexist uh, subgenres of uh, music. Uh, I've 
I've lost count of the number of times I've had to engage metal sites about particular things, but even in the metal world, there are some really genuine attempts to challenge sexism, to hear about women's experiences, uh, but it shows that in whatever avenue of life we're in, you know, whether it be politics like yourself or music or the lawn bowling club, you know, we've got opportunities to listen out to beliefs, sexist beliefs or racist beliefs and, and find gentle ways of helping people to, to think differently about these things. Can you listen to a, a, a metal song uh, whose uh, music you like but whose lyrics you disagree with or do you have to turn it off? No, that's that's really, really interesting uh, uh, question and, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a label for that. It's music, it's, you know, it's called sketch, which means that it has particular you know, political or sexist beliefs that... So, uh, oh, no, I make different choices there. I uh, would not buy anything from, uh, you know, over, overly nationalist uh, or racist or, or uh, sexist fans because in black metal, which I love, there is a Nazi socialist black metal movement, uh, you know, highly nationalist. So, no, I wouldn't listen. Uh, I wouldn't visit particular websites. Uh, it does quite a little bit of research, but there is a lot of experimental websites that vet that stuff that will uh, not include music uh, by bands that do have suspect politics. Um, and there are a number of metal musicians who, uh, yeah, who are really beautiful engagement with ethics. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's a whole world in whole world in itself. And like anything, uh, we need to explore, search, but make those personal ethical choices because, unfortunately, we can't just say, "Oh, I love the music." Uh, you know, every time we support something, that yeah, it's impossible not to take a position on things. Um, um yeah. So unfortunately, there's there is some music that I say no to listen that I don't listen to absolutely. Yeah, it reminds me, my uh, son's a hip hop dancer and uh, uh, enjoys listening to his music on Spotify. And when I insisted that he turn on the clean setting, he did notice that it uh, rather, rather remarkably uh, de decreased his uh, selection of possible hip hop artists to listen to. Um, finally, finally, Rodney, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Yeah, I think my response to that, I, I imagine, would be similar to a number of. of you know, former men, historical men, or, or men, you know, call myself a historical male uh, because of my non-gender binary and status. But uh, I think for a lot of men, uh, it's been, uh, you know, women in our lives and, and uh, uh, hearing uh, women's perspectives, women's views. Uh, so, you know, just to give a, another, uh, another example uh, of, uh, yeah, you know, as a much younger male, uh, I used to use pornography and uh, uh, it was a, a partner you know, 25 years ago, 25 yeah, years ago now or so that, uh, you yeah, helped me to understand uh, the harm that, um, you know, that was causing what I was supporting by, by doing that. So, yeah, for me, the experiences of people I've learned from, uh, yeah, have been those that have uh, helped me to, to see yeah, some of my own privilege. And so there's been wonderful women. There's been amazing activists along the way, incredible mentors. A lot of people I work with now, as I mentioned before, an incredibly, you know, beautiful children and rainbow families that, that, that we love. Uh, you know, my family, my son, my partner. I, I think there's a whole world for us to, to, to listen to and to... And you know, a big part of this is trying to understand, well, what am I blind to? What am I blinking to? 
Uh, but in terms of one particular person, yeah, no, it's an ever journey to try to be as open as I as I can. And, yeah. Your answer certainly uh, contains multitudes, uh, as indeed does uh, does so many of uh, your responses to the question today. Uh, Rodney Blaze, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast. Yeah, no, thank you, Andrew. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the the questions. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Jess Hill and Rosie Batty. Also, I want to ask you a favour. On the 6th of June, I'll be competing in the Cairns Ironman to raise money for the Indigenous Marathon Foundation. To make a donation, just go to my Facebook or Twitter page to find the link. Thanks in advance. Next week... We'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.